episode of Take This Job and Love It. This is a podcast from Yale's Office of Career Strategy aimed at helping you through the various aspects of finding a job and building a career that you love. My name is Claire Zala and since semester just ended a few days ago I am now a senior in Yale College. I work with the Common Good and Creative Careers team to support Yale students interested in pursuing careers that make a difference and encourage creativity. Today I'm joined on the podcast by Lee Bardugo. Lee is a graduate of Yale College and a New York Times bestselling author, known for her fantasy series, The Shadow and Bone Trilogy, The Six of Crows duology, and most recently the novel Ninth House, which is actually set at Yale. And very excitingly, Shadow and Bone and Six of Crows are currently being developed by a Netflix by Netflix into a TV series. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, Lee. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. I'm excited. Um, so Lee, writing as a profession is famous for not having a clear track. As I understand it, you experimented with a few different creative outlets before coming home to writing, correct? Yeah. Um, like many liberal arts majors, I was an English major. Uh, I didn't really know what I was going to do coming out of school. Um, I applied to uh, a bunch of ad agencies. Uh, because that seemed like a good idea. Um, I didn't want to teach. Uh, Jobs in journalism were not as hard to come by as they are today, but they certainly were hard to come by. Um, And, you know, you see a lot of movies where where people work at ad agencies and it looks like a great job where you sit around spitballing ideas and so forth. That is not what it is, by the way. I do not suggest going into advertising unless your live stream is to come up with a phrase like just do it, which admittedly has had a lot of longevity. Um, So uh, yeah, so I uh, basically ended up working in an ad agency and I quit about three weeks after and um, started temping in New York for a while before I got my first job actually interning at the New Haven Advocate, which I hope still exists, but I think may not. Hmm. Um, Not sure. Yeah, um, so yes, I worked for them. I worked for the LA Weekly. Um, this was before <laughs> the internet killed free weeklies. This was where we used to get um, news about concerts and local happenings. And um, it was actually a great space for um, marginalized communities. Uh, but that was really sort of the advent of um, journalism moving online. Uh, and I got a job in Seattle. Um, and worked for a new media company there during the dot-com boom. Uh, I hated it. We can talk about that as much as you want. This is all me. Like, let me tell you about all the crappy jobs I had. Um, and uh, it was really, I loved the people I worked, worked with, so it was not all for nothing. But, um, I, and I loved living in Seattle, but I absolutely hated uh, my job and my boss. And then, um, I found a listing for a job working at uh, Fox, mm-hmm. uh, not Fox News, mostly, but uh, Fox. Fox was doing a big dot-com venture for um, a bunch of their television shows. So I applied and uh, packed up and moved down to Los Angeles. And uh, I worked there for a year before they shut the whole company down. <laughs> 
And we all got like a break. (laughs) You know, I will actually say, I think that was a break because I was, you know, in my twenties at the time and I was getting paid a good chunk of money, you know, like good, good money for then. Um, but it was, it was a nonsensical job. You know, I was devoting, um, you know, there was, I was working 80 hour work weeks for, to work on a website for Allie McBeal. You know, this was not, um, the place to be putting my heart and my health and sacrificing relationships for, but I didn't know how to work in any kind of balanced way. And the truth is when you're in your twenties, most businesses that hire you want to burn you out. Like that is, that is what they're doing. Ad agencies, um, if you go into working as a PA in Hollywood, um, publishing, all of these businesses bank on the idea that in your 20s, you're essentially cannon fodder and you're going to be willing to work these crazy hours um, for not a whole lot of money. Um, and you really have to decide where to put your passion at that time. I'm a big uh, proponent of day jobs. I'm all for uh, finding the thing you love and pursuing it, but there's rent to be paid and loans to be paid off. Um, all I would say is that it is wise to either choose a day job that will not require more from you than a nine to five, or to choose something that is a career track job that you don't mind sacrificing your heart and your health for and your time for. Um, so we've all got laid off. Hilariously, they used our old offices to shoot the first season of 24 in, which is, <laughs> I mean, I when I watched that series, they used the same phone ring. It's very distinctive and it was quite traumatizing. And um, then I went to work uh, as writing ad copy, um, you know, for catalogs and websites. I got a job writing movie trailers um, because I took a a screenwriting class. And um, I'm not sure it was a fantastic class. I got some great things out of it. But the best thing I got out of it was I met some uh, fabulous people. And one of them uh, worked for one of the big companies that makes trailers. For movies. This is actually a fantastic job. <laughs> I recommend it highly. Um, and they needed a woman on staff because they wanted to pitch to Disney and some other companies that had family fair. Mm-hmm. And it was basically an office full of bros. And so they basically brought me in to do the lady projects and I was happy to take their money. So you think you might be doing the voiceovers for your television series now? <laughs> I wish that had been my job. And I wish I'd gotten to write the really great cheesy action movie um, trailers, but I did not. But it was a fantastic day job, and I will forever be grateful to Wayne Drake for giving it to me. Thank you, Wayne Drake. Um, But uh, then I took a sort of detour. My, is this a very long answer? Did you know? No. Okay. I think so, I think it's good to hear because the the issue with writing is there's some kind of a, a mystique about it. You know, you meet these people who've you know written all these kinds of books and 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 whatever, and and it sounds like it's not a skill. It sounds like something you have to be born with. You have to have that genius or whatever. And I think it's awesome when people can hear there was a process, there was experience, and there's. Are we allowed? Sorry. Are we allowed to swear on this? Podcast. You know, no one told me you can't. <laughs> okay, well, I'll just say the whole mystique of creative culture and of the wunderkind and of this idea of um, young genius is such a spectacular load of bullshit. And I think it's incredibly damaging 
um, to all artists, but particularly to young artists, because they put themselves in this category that then has a ticking clock attached to it, right? How long are you interesting because you're young? Eventually that time runs out. And maybe you're one of the privileged few who sells a book when they're in college or sells a book when they're out of college, but that is a teeny tiny fragment of people. Some people go into an MFA, they, you know, they do have that sort of stratospheric rise afterwards, but again, a tiny fraction of the people who are out there working and the people who are out there unsuccessful. And also what the writing life looks like, I think has a tremendous amount of mystique around it that's only been made worse by the advent of social media because we all present these sort of um, carefully curated lives when most writers I know who are working writers are also have some kind of day job or um, augment their income with teaching or with speaking or with something like that. It's just, there's not a lot of talk about the economics of being a writer. Um, but I guess what I would say is like, I, I did, I wanted to be a novelist from the time I was a kid. But I also wanted to have a nice life, <laughs> a nice apartment, and and I didn't know how to go about becoming a writer. Um, you know, I took a screenwriting class. I tried to write a spec script. Um, I would start novels. I would get about two chapters in, and then I would, you know, lose momentum because I had no idea how to structure a book. Um, and I think that I really needed to learn. I needed to learn simply the basics of what it takes for me to be able to write a book. But I also needed to grow into a place where I could sit with the discomfort that is writing a novel, um, as opposed to these sort of paroxysms of genius that we're led to believe they are, where you have inspiration and then you, you know, go through this glorious uh, uh, climb up this mountain and then voila, at the end you have this, this product, you know, that there is just simply the daily discomfort of sitting with your own incompetence. Like that is what writing a novel is, um, with occasional smatterings of days when you feel like an absolute genius. So I think if people had a clearer sense of, um, the work it takes to write a book and how long you have to build a career and to do interesting things, it would be better for everyone and we would probably end up with a lot more interesting art because people wouldn't give up. I think that's the best description of not only writing but creative practice in itself, just the daily discomfort of sitting with your own incompetence. <laughs> like, that just spoke to me on such a level you won't understand, um, or you will understand. It's so true and I think it's particularly true for um, people who end up in places like Yale. Like, I don't know, you seem like a very driven person. I was um, kind of a screw up, you know? I, there's no way I would get into Yale now. I feel very confident about that. But I was one of those kids who, you know, could write the paper the night before it was due and cram for the test the night before the test was happening. And, and, and I learned to use adrenaline and to use um, uh, these sort of panic states in order to get work done. And that's fine. It actually works just fine in academics. It stops working when you get out into the real world. You cannot live your life um, essentially summoning or bringing on these panic states. And you cannot write a novel that way. Writing a novel is like learning to play an instrument. You sit with it every day. You live with the disconnect between what's in your head and what's on the page. You have an idea of this magical golden thing you're trying to create but 
inevitably you have to sit through the first draft and second draft and third draft while that thing that's on the page looks nothing like the magical ideal in your head. So that is not something that I think a lot of people, particularly young high achievers, are trained to live with. You know, the, that feeling of small failures leading to large success is something I was never educated in. You know, in my house, if you weren't good at something, you just stopped doing it. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to embarrass yourself? You should do the things you're good at. I thought writing was the thing I was good at. So when I would hit these moments of discomfort or inadequacy or doubt, to me, it was like this stop sign saying, stop, you, you, uh, clearly you're doing the wrong thing. It's the wrong idea or you don't know how to do it or you're on the wrong path. When in fact, you learn the more you do this that those moments of deep doubt and of struggle are actually not stop signs. They're kind of just road signs that are telling you that you are on the right path and you're just trying to do something bigger and more challenging than you've ever done before. Yeah, I, I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm just in awe. I think that's, that's exactly what, like I'm a creative myself and I think that's really what I needed to hear right now is, uh, is just, I, is learning to deal with that discomfort and also learning that the roadblocks, while they might appear to be roadblocks, are in fact just a completely natural part of the process and something yes. that everybody has to live through. Truly. Um, I don't know a single author who doesn't. One of the greatest perks of this job has been meeting some of my favorite authors and learning that they go through the exact same thing. This isn't just something you experience because you're an amateur or because you're not good enough. It's something you experience because it's just part of the process. And it does get better because you learn to trust yourself more, you learn your own process. But if you are, you know, most of us make challenges for ourselves when we are doing our work. So we don't want to write the same book again and again and again. And so with every new novel or art piece or whatever it is, we're creating these new and complicated challenges for ourselves. Almost, it's a kind of masochism where you learn one thing and you're like, all right, how can I move on to the next thing? And some part of us wants to wrestle with these narrative puzzles, I think. So, you know, once, once you had that draft, you've overcome those roadblocks um, mm -hmm. to what eventually would become Shadow and Bone, your first book. Um, what was your experience with the publication process? Okay, so, um, okay, I'm trying to think of how to articulate this. So, once you have your draft, and once it has been seen by your critique partners or beta readers, okay, so an editor or an agent should never be the first person who sees your draft other than you. So, and you've gone through your revisions and you've built the best draft you can. What you're going to do is you're going to write a query letter. And a query letter is essentially an introduction, a pitch of the book, tiny bit about yourself, and you're out. It's your elevator pitch. And, you know, if there's some spectacular hook that links you to the story, that's great. I didn't have one. Um, but if you, you know, are writing about Costa Rica and you grew up in Costa Rica, that would be something you mentioned in your pitch letter. Um, you can either submit to agents or to directly to editors. And of course, there's a whole other route that would be self-publishing, but I don't have personal experience in that, so I don't feel particularly equipped to talk about it. But there are editors who accept open submissions. It's particularly common in science fiction and fantasy and in nonfiction. Um, I will say that 
I have an extraordinary agent. And that relationship is a big part of the reason I have the career that I do. Okay. There are agents who are just about making a deal for you, creating a contract for you. And those things are important, trust me, because it's an agent who can create an auction situation, for instance. You go out to an editor, the editor's gonna offer you a certain amount of money if they like your book, and that's that. You can try to negotiate with them, but one, you are in less of a position to negotiate because you haven't gone out to other editors, or if you have, it would be very hard for you to set up an auction. Um, two, you are then also corrupting, to a certain extent, the relationship you have with that editor, which is ideally something you wanna keep as creative as possible and not tainted by um, filthy lucre and business. You wanna leave that to your agent. Is the editor um, separate from uh, the publication house? Like an independent editor or just somebody? No. Uh, sorry, yeah, let me clarify. Okay, so basically the agent, if you go with an agent, the agent is going to, um, and I, if we want, we can talk about sort of questions you should be asking agents and how to figure out who to send to. What I did was um, I just got online and started researching. I had given my draft to a couple of my friends and while they were reading, I was um, researching who I wanted to reach out to and making myself a little spreadsheet. And it can seem very overwhelming at first because there are a lot of agents out there, but it really isn't because what you're gonna learn is who is accepting submissions because a lot of agents are like, my list is closed, I have too many clients already. You're gonna figure out who your top tier is, the people who you would most like to work with. You're gonna find out if those people are accepting the kind of thing you're working on. So for instance, when I started looking into querying, I quickly learned that at the time, nobody wanted high fantasy or secondary world fantasy, which is what I was writing. Mm. They all wanted steampunk or werewolves or sci-fi, anything but <laughs> high fantasy. And in fact, many explicitly said, no high fantasy, no epic fantasy. Um, and I quickly realized that I had made a horrible mistake, <laughs> but as it turned out, there were enough people who were looking and the right person who was looking. So in the long run, it didn't make much difference. And now, to be frank, young adult is blooded with high fantasy. Um, so I researched at different blogs. There are plenty of research, uh, uh, resources out there for you. Most agencies now have websites where the agents talk about themselves and what they're looking for. Um, do not query more than one agent at a given agency. You've got to choose which agent you want. You want to personalize your query. Um, and there are also things like query shark or there used to be query shark, um, there are various sites that talk about the recent deals that agents have made. If you're at a loss for where to start, you can also look at the acknowledgements of books because authors usually name their agents. Say, you know, thank you so much to my agent, Joanna Volpe, et cetera. Um, so that's sort of how you're gonna make your list. You're gonna query in small batches and you should treat your query letter the same way you treat your manuscript. You want to have it read by other people. You want to work it and work it again. And in fact, you should be working on that query letter when you're writing the manuscript. It will actually help you to understand your book better, to be forced to distill, to distill it down to just a few lines, just a small paragraph. Um, then the agent, if that agent wants to sign you, is going to make an offer to you. You have to think about that contract and 
so forth, feel free to consult other people, ask to speak to the agents or their clients. You can email them or call them. If the agent is not willing to let you do that, that should be a red flag. Um, once you choose your agent, assuming that you get an offer, um, that agent is going to make a list of editors at different publishing houses. And that is part of what, that is part of the reason you're giving your agent a percentage of your earnings, because they know all these people. Part of an agent's job is to go to drinks, go to dinner, talk to these editors, get to know what they love, what they're looking for, um, how they work with authors, what's a good fit, because they're playing matchmaker for you. Mm. And then they're gonna send out a manuscript to uh, all of these editors at the same time, or sometimes an editor will say, you know what, I love this pitch or this idea so much, I don't want you to send it out, I'm gonna offer you a preempt, which is, and then your agent, and you have to decide if the preempt is significant enough that you're willing to forego the process. Um, I can tell you that when we went on submission with Shadow and Bone, the first offer we got was itty bitty. And I thought, well, I'll still be published, you know, and, and we were lucky enough to then get into an auction situation. But, you know, the it is very easy to get hung up thinking about um, book deals and the size of your advance and so forth. But one book and one large advance do not a career make. And I will say too that I really thought I was, you know, something special <laughs> when I sold this book and oh, I, you know, especially given where we started in the process with offers. And then I found out what really big book deals <laughs> look like. And I had a little bit of a rude awakening. It was quite humbling, but it was, it was good. Um, but so that is why you would, you know, go to an agent. However, <laughs> the agent's job does not end with the deal. And unfortunately, I think some agents, they do end with a deal. But what you want is somebody who's going to be in there with you because the, okay, and now I'm going to, sorry, there's so much, there's so much. No, this is like legitimately such helpful information. This is, this is okay. <laughs> All right. So what you should keep in mind though, too, is let's say an editor loves your manuscript. They stay up all night reading it. They love it. It's not as if the editor then has this money in her pocket that she gets to spend unless she is one of the big mocker agents. Uh, editors. So what she then has to do is she has to go in and pitch your book to a group of people at her publishing house. And then and they come up with a profit and loss statement. Okay, this is how much we think we can make on it. This is where we think it belongs in the market. And there's all, room for all different kinds of books. Some books are like, we think this is a big bestseller. We think this is the next Hunger Games or Harry Potter. It never is. But we think it's the next... <laughs> you know, big book. Or sometimes we think this is a quiet, beautiful, lyrical story. We think this could be an award winner, you know, or we think this would do great in schools. Um, and they have to make a pitch. And then that team decides whether that person gets to offer money for this and how much. Because they're all, you know, there's a lot of editors who are saying, you know, we only have so much money in our budget. And I think that's important to keep in mind because Rejection, rejections will invariably come. They will come from agents, they will come from editors, and it is very hard not to feel that deeply and personally. However, it is very rarely just about your work. It is about the market, it is about what else they have on their list, it is about the timing. Um, there's so much that goes into this. I'm having major flashbacks to applying to college. I mean, there is a distinct similarity in that. <laughs> Um, and I remember, I remember my first rejection 
uh, from an agent so clearly. It came in like three hours after I sent out my first email query. Like I was like, oh, I'll wait. Uh, it'll be a week before. Nope. <laughs> nope. That rejection came in real fast. Um, and I remember thinking about it thinking like, is this the first of many or is this just going to be a footnote? And both things were true. I got rejected by plenty of people, but I got uh, an offer from the right person. So that's what matters. Um, and, you know, so your editor who brings the book in is the person who usually is the person who's going to be editing you and shepherding you through the process. And an editor has really two big functions, which is one, to edit your work and work with you to make the book as good as possible, but two, to be your advocate in the publishing house. Again, there's this magical budget money that's floating around and everybody's got to fight for it. So part of the editor's job is to get everybody in that house excited about your book and to make sure that it is marketed and that it gets attention because it's very easy for books to slip through the cracks and really wonderful books do all of the time. Your agent, it's her job too, <laughs> or his job to be the person who is constantly advocating for you, making sure that certain milestones are hit, making sure that galleys are going to go out, asking, you know, our, what is our advertising campaign and where are we focusing and how, how are we doing this? Um, because again, it's very easy to slip through the cracks and you really want a good partner in that. Now, again, you do not have to have an agent. Some big writers do not have agents. Um, you certainly get to keep all your money then, although you probably will have to pay a lawyer because uh, unless you are a lawyer, parsing contracts is incredibly difficult. These things are bricks. Mm -hmm. um, keep in mind that most contracts take, I don't think I signed my shadow and bone contract until six months after our, we had our deal memo. Um, you know, you have to advocate for getting paid, <laughs> getting your money. That is work that's taking you away from writing. Similarly, if you go down the self-publishing road, you're not giving any money to a publisher. So potentially you're making a ton of money, but you also have to be willing to do your own marketing, understand the algorithms, deal with your own pricing and price drops, deal with your own cover and art, copyright, all that kind of thing. So there's pros and cons to all those things. I am not a great business person and I feel very lucky to have an agent who I can talk about these things with, who I can problem solve with, and they're invariably problems. In publishing that's just the way it is nothing goes smoothly it's the nature of business um and you know I, I feel like I'm fast forwarding quite a bit through your career but um something I definitely wanted to talk to you about was um you know Netflix is adapting Shadow and Bone and, and Six of Crows you know how did that come to pass and what was that like when you kind of got that call <laughs> Um, it was a long, difficult road, like most things. <laughs> um, so we sold the, initially sold the rights to the Shadow and Bone trilogy to DreamWorks uh, through David Heyman's production company, Heyday. And that was back in, whew, I think, fall of 2012. Um, and I will tell you, too, we had deals set up for that that fell through before then. We had some momentum going in, and then our executives left, and that was that. <laughs> you know, once, once your executive leaves, you're kind of done. Um, and so they just sort of sat on the rights for, I think, two years. 
And then, you know, because Six of Crows was connected to that, when we went out with Six of Crows, you know, there were some question marks about, um, you know, the, the relationship of the series and, and what could be purchased separately. Um, but years and years ago, when we were still at DreamWorks, I had a meeting with a couple of uh, guys at Netflix, Brian Wright and Matt Fennell, and they, I wanted to pitch them Six of Crows, but they're like, no, 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 we want to talk about Shadow and Bone. I was like, DreamWorks has Shadow and Bone. They were like, but uh, we want to talk about Shadow and Bone. And they had me draw a map for them, and it was very, like, it was, and I didn't totally understand the meeting, but that's the nature of Hollywood. You're going to take a lot of meetings where you don't understand why you took the meeting, but you're going to drink a small bottle of water, and you're sometimes going to meet people who you click with. So a few years down the line, we had gone out with Six of Crows and had a lot of offers on it. And to be honest, we, you know, we, we just kept saying no. Um, it is a very cinematic book. Like, it really works. <laughs> I mean, I had always felt like Six of Crows was very suited to TV. Yeah. Um, it felt like something that could be made in a, in a kind of lost, the structure of lost with the flashbacks and so forth, um, but not the terrible ending. <laughs> um, and, but what, you, what we kept running into was I would come out of a meeting and I would think, I, I, don't, I don't think I get it. You know, I don't, think, I don't think this is the right place. And we just kept saying no. And I remember calling um, Puya Shabazi and my, my producing partner and I said, are we, you know, we've said no, nobody's going to ask us to dance. You know, if you're trying to knock people down, your window closes. Are we being foolish here? Are we being stupid? And he just said, look, we have to go with our gut. And if your gut says no, I don't want to push you into this. And I was like, okay. Um, and one of my favorite meetings was with, um, oh, I can't tell you that. It's really filthy. But let's just say, <laughs> but I once had a Hollywood executive say to me, like, you know the thing I love about Sex of Gross is it's full of guy stuff. And I was like, what kind of guys? It was like, you know, trash talk, gunfights, explosions. And I was like, you know, women like that stuff too. And he's like, women like it. Men love it. And I was like, <laughs> to which I responded, you know I don't have a dick, right? But it was a short <laughs> meeting. You can cut that out of the podcast. I can't if you um, like me too, but I think it's great. <laughs> but yes. Oh, Hollywood. Um, so there... There were many times where I was like, I don't want to, I, that story means a lot to me. I didn't want to put it in somebody's hands. And you're also always playing this gamble. Lots of people will buy properties and then they don't do anything with them. Mm -hmm. They buy the option and then they just sit on it. We got very lucky. Um, so we had gotten an offer and Netflix came in and said, we don't want you to take the offer. It was the same guy as Brian Wright and Matt and They were like, we want this. We wanted this for years. We went and did a meeting with them and I liked what they had to say. And then we were making the deal and we were looking for a showrunner. And Eric Heiserer, who had written Arrival and been nominated for an Academy Award for that and who later made Bird Box and many horror movies and awesome things, um, he uh, had tweeted at me a few months before a picture of Six of Crows and saying how much he was enjoying it. And so we reached out to him and it turned out he was, his wife, Christine is a TV writer 
and he wanted to move into television. And so we met up for lunch and we talked about what our vision was for the show and how to bring these two stories together and what I wanted to see change in the books and what he wanted to see change in the books and things we didn't want to see change in the books. And we went from there. And to be frank, I think without his energy and sort of willingness to push and push and work and work and to build these extraordinary teams, our writing team, our production team, our incredible cast, I mean, that we moved very quickly once that deal was inked. And I think that's really because of him. That's awesome. And so we're just about out of time, but I do have like one or two more questions for you, if you'll indulge me. Um, yeah, I'll try not to be so long-winded. <laughs> no, I, this legitimately is such, such great information. Um, so what, you know, apart from working knowledge of a pencil and a keyboard, what do you think is a really important skill for a modern day writer to possess? Maybe especially a writer who's just graduating from Yale. Um, and I'd also like to know, and you can interpret this question however you wish, um, what are your hopes for the future? <laughs> well, domination. <laughs> my house, that's my big hope for the future. Um, okay, so you asked what, what the skills are that uh, somebody would need coming out of Yale? Yeah, or like a piece of advice that you'd, you'd give someone to keep in their back pocket or take out of their back pocket and, and, and use. I guess I'd say a few things. Um, read broadly. Okay, don't just read the genre you want to write. Um, develop a network of writers or good readers, people who understand story. They do not have to be doing the same thing you're doing. You can be the kind of people who just, the people who come out of movies and are like, well, I liked it, but you know, the heroine was unlikable because X, Y, or Z, you know, and the second act adventure is really slow down. Like that's your, that's your person, you know, who's going to give you an honest but generous read. Develop that network. Um, Find your process and don't fear it. Um, it is great to study craft. It is great to take classes. Anything you can do to maintain your momentum and your uh, ability to work on a project. But just understand <laughs> in your heart that there is no class and no trick and no tip that can spare you the pain of writing a first draft, okay? So write the first draft. Write the entire first draft. Don't worry how fast you're moving through the first draft. When you start to get distracted by other ideas, work those ideas into the draft. Write a complete first draft, a messy, unoriginal, terrible first draft full of stops and starts that nobody will ever see. Because once you see the beginning and middle and end of a story, you will understand it. And you will have learned so much more from that than from writing a perfect, two chapters and then stopping and then writing another perfect first two chapters again for some other story, write the whole draft. And also there's no expiration date on your talent, okay? You have a lot of life ahead of you and there is not one way to do this. I didn't publish my first book until I was 37. I sold my first book at 35. You know, you will have jobs and experience things that make you a better writer. So if you publish at 22, fantastic. If you publish at 55, fantastic. But as long as you have a story to tell and you have the discipline to sit with the pain and get it done, somebody will wanna hear it. There's never an end to that desire. And the fetishization of, of the artist as a youth is something you can really just throw away. Um, what was the second question? Uh, what are your hopes for the future? 
my hopes for the future. Um, look, I want to keep writing. I want to, I want to find new ways to engage with my stories and my readers, especially in times like this. Um, I want to, I, I think <laughs> I once was talking to an author and I said, you know, does everybody feel this way, this fear that it's going to be taken away? Because for most of us, this is our dream job. It's not just something we pursued. It has to be because it asks so much of you, um, especially when you're kind of on, on the way up. And she said, no, I don't think so. I think we all sort of experience this feeling that, it, you know, it's going to get taken away and we're going to have to go back to one of those day jobs we had before. And I think I would, my hope for the future is I will continue to be able to tell stories and that I will tell enough stories um, convincingly that I will be able to stop feeling that fear. Yeah, just, and write, write fearlessly and look fearlessly. I mean, for a fairly fearful person. Write <laughs> <laughs> right in such a way that the fear drives you rather than stops you, I guess is a better way of saying it. I think fear and anxiety can be tools. And I also think that um, you are allowed to be a creative person and be a doubtful person, a frightened person, an angry person. Um, and the truth is there's tremendous catharsis to be found in, in writing. Writing is not therapy, okay? Therapy is therapy. Writing is what drives you to need therapy. But, <laughs> Writing can be exactly what you need at a time. I often find myself stepping back from a work and seeing that I have been writing a particular moment or trauma or, um, or something that I'm seeking into a story. And that is a good thing. You know, we, we tend to deride things in the literary world. There's a, a tendency to turn up our noses at stories that are full of id and wish fulfillment, you know, oh, it's self-insert, or it's fan fiction, or it's, but those things are delicious. And it's all right to want delicious things, to read delicious things, and to create delicious things. The idea that creating things that bring us pleasure and escapism and joy is somehow not a, a valid or worthy pursuit is the kind of thing that will stop you. Write the book that you want to read, write the book that you wish you could read in a moment, um, and really, if anybody gets in your way, give them the finger and keep moving. We, this was a truly amazing episode. I've so enjoyed talking to you and thank you so much for coming on the episode, on the show today. It's my pleasure. I'm sorry I rambled so much. There's so much to talk about in the business and I don't get to talk about the business side of publishing very much. I usually am talking about craft elements and world building and that kind of thing. So this was very fun for me. I'm so glad. Um, everybody, that was Lee Bardugo, author and just kick-ass person of awesomeness. Thank you so much. Thank you.